snorkeling and smorgasbords, deck chairs and dance floors, swimming pools and shopping sprees. A cruise is supposed to be great fun. Did you know that in 2016, 24.7 million people, a record number, took their vacation on a cruise ship? It was cruise or lose. Apparently, the old cliche, cruises are for the overfed and almost dead, is no longer the case. Lots of vacationers are cruising these days. And one of the most popular destinations is the Mediterranean. A Mediterranean cruise sounds particularly glamorous. Yet after tonight's study, you might have a different opinion. For in Acts chapter 27, Paul set sail on a Mediterranean cruise, but these passengers are singing the blues. At the outset of his ministry, God told Paul that he would preach to Gentiles and to kings. And the Emperor Nero was both. It was inevitable that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, would witness to Nero, the ruler of the Gentiles. But how do you arrange a meeting between a little guy like Paul and the head honcho of the Roman Empire, a man like Nero? Paul was unable to even afford passage to Rome. But Once again, God's providence worked to accomplish His purposes. For when the Apostle Paul got tired of being kicked around like a political football, of getting kicked back and forth between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans in Caesarea, he appealed his case to the Caesar in Rome. As a Roman citizen, Paul had that right, and as the Roman governor, Festus paid that bill. And in Acts chapter 27, Paul embarks on an all-expenses-paid Mediterranean cruise courtesy of Caesar Nero's own treasury. Verse 1 begins, And when it was decided that we should set sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Augustus was the title worn by the emperor. The Augustan regiment may have been a battalion assigned specifically to the royal household. If so, Paul here is being escorted by Caesar's own secret service. And so entering a ship at a dromidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, or what is today southern Turkey. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And notice here Luke writes, we put to sea. He, he says of Aristarchus, he was with us. Not only was Aristarchus traveling with Paul, he was also traveling with Luke. Luke was with them. It was not uncommon for Paul to travel with many different friends. It seems the Apostle Paul was a people person. One Bible commentator puts it, if, puts it, Paul had a genius for friendship. No man in the New Testament made fiercer enemies, but few men had better friends. Speaking of friends... Have you heard the story of the two porcupines? Have you heard the story of Billy and Willie? Two porcupine friends named Will and Bill were taking one, talking one day of porcupine eels. Said Willie to Bill with a sorrowful moan, 
Isn't it sad that we live all alone? The animals, they shun us. I have not a friend. Please tell me, Bill, oh, what is my sin? Don't sweat it, my friend, said Porcupine Bill. It isn't your sin. It's just your sharp quills. We live all alone. That's just how it goes because no one wants quills in the end of their nose. I got it, said Willie. The answer I know, I'd rather have friends, so my quills got to go. But Bill exclaimed, it doesn't make sense. Without your sharp quills, you'll have no defense. Willie thought and he thought, but he couldn't decide. Should he give up his quills or save his own hide? And then in a flash, he decided with glee, I'll pull out my quills in the trunk of a tree. With all of his might, he ran at the trunk, and into the bark went his quills with a thump. His quills all came out in the trunk of the tree, and Willie exclaimed, At last I am free. Free to be eaten, said Bill in disgust. You'll find out real soon there's no one you can trust. But Willie said firmly, I must leave my cage. I'd rather risk friendship than die of old age. For into the night they debated the matter, live safely alone or make someone fatter. The porcupine question remains to this day, is it outreach or safety? Which one do you say? Everybody loses one or the other, either quills or your friends. It's risky sometimes to reach out and make friends. But you can't keep both. You can't keep your quills and your friends. If you want friendship, you've got to drop your guard and get rid of the quills and risk being known by other people. You need to take a chance and open up to the people of God. Lose your quills and God might just bless you with some good fellowship. Well, in verse 3, Paul's voyage continues. He says, In the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And again, here Paul is hanging out with his friends. Again, it's been said, Paul was both a great soul winner and also a great friend maker. And notice here, Sergeant Julius, he trusted Paul. Apparently, he wasn't worried that he would try to escape. He knew that Paul was a man of his word, and so he allowed him to hang out with his friends for the time they were at dock. Verse 4, when we had put to sea from there... We sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Sicily, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. The ship's navigator used the island of Cyprus to block the westerly winds. They sailed for Myra, again on the Turkish coast, the region that at the time was referred to as Asia Minor. Then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. This was probably a cargo ship carrying wheat from Egypt to Rome. And he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. Now the wind was causing some choppy seas and some slow sailing. In smooth waters, the 130 miles from the port of Myra to Nidus could have been covered in a very short time. Instead, under these six more extreme weather conditions, it took many days, Luke tells us. Then verse 8, 
The wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmone, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Again, look at the map, and Italy is due west of Nidus. But the headwinds were so strong that the captain sailed southwest. He sailed crosswind to the island of Crete. The ship landed in the port of Fairhavens on the southern coast of the island. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. He's setting the time frame for us. Understand, after mid-September, sailing was dangerous. After mid-November, it was impossible. The fast that Luke refers to was the Feast of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. That means that at the time, it's around mid to late October. You can still travel, but the traveling is becoming increasingly dangerous. Now, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Paul issues a warning. Now, Paul wasn't much of a sailor. He wasn't a sailor by trade. But Paul was a seasoned traveler. He spent a lot of time on the sea. This wasn't his first cruise. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he lists his trials, he writes this, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I had been in the deep. I mean, Paul had experienced his share of nautical nightmares. Paul has no desire to spend another night as shark bait. And so he gives them a warning, please, we need to just settle and dock here for the winter. And Sergeant Julius should have listened to Paul, but, verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. And once again, siding with the experts gets a person in trouble. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. And it wasn't just the harbor. The sailors didn't want to be stuck in Fairhavens for the winter. You see, Fairhavens was a tiny little hamlet, whereas Phoenix had stuff to do. There was nothing in Fairhavens. be like spending a winter in Snellville. But in Phoenix, man, there was, some, there was some stuff happening in Phoenix, man. For one, you could take in a son's basketball game. There was an NFL franchise in Phoenix, NBA franchise. There was nightlife in Phoenix. There were bars and revelry. Some women, lust had tainted their logic. They stopped thinking rationally. The crew members, they took a vote, and the majority said, sell for Phoenix. Always be leery of the majority, please. God's will often conflicts with the majority opinion. At times, following God requires us to go against the grain. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Notice the wording. 
the south wind blew softly. And understand the easy path isn't always God's path. We often think that just because the door swings open or the winds blow softly or circumstances have become more convenient, God must be in it. Not necessarily. Here the crew gets duped. Remember Proverbs 14 verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Be careful you don't get duped by ease and convenience. In fact, when you, when you go over this story, notice the four ways here that you can miss out on God's will. First, just get impatient. If you want to miss out on God's will, just get impatient. Hey, we got to get to Phoenix, man. Let's push it. Second, take a vote. If you want to miss God's will, take a vote. Side with the majority instead of seeking the Lord. Third, test the winds. Let circumstances instead of principle dictate your decisions. Opt for the easy way, the path of least resistance, rather than the right course. And then fourth, if you want to miss the will of God, let your lusts take over. These sailors, they wanted to make Phoenix for all the wrong reasons. This is what causes you to miss God's will. Yet in contrast, here's what causes you to stay in the center of God's will. Be patient. Learn to wait. Rely on God's wisdom even if it's unpopular with your friends. Base your decisions on convictions and principles, not just convenience. And then fourthly, walk in the Spirit. Rely on God to satisfy your needs. Well, notice verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurachlodon. We get our English word typhoon from the Greek word translated here tempestuous. These sailors named these winds after the direction of their origin. Eurachlodon means the northeasterner. Thus the storm had arisen suddenly. And so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now remember, Phoenix was a mere 45 miles up the coast of Crete from Fairhaven's. But the wind shifted. When they left the port, the wind shifted. The soft southern winds turned into a violent northeasterly. Huge swells were now slamming against the wooden hull. If they had fought the storm and held course, the boat would have broken apart. Their only option was to sail with the wind, to stop resisting and try to ride out the storm. Verse 16 And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. Up to this point, they were dragging a lifeboat behind them. They didn't want to lose the dinghy, so they tied it to the main hull. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Here's another way they tried to survive as the waves were slapping against the hull. They could hear the timbers creaking and cracking. And so they strung ropes under the boat in hopes of stabilizing the frame and keeping it from breaking apart. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. You see, the more they fought this northeastern winds, the further south they were pushed. The sailors feared the Sirtis sands, which were quicksands 
off the northern coast of Africa. The area was nicknamed the ship's graveyard. And to avoid the danger, the seamen lowered their sails and just drifted. Of course, this made them vulnerable. Verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. In other words, the more weight the ship carried, the more momentum took it in the wrong direction. So they started ditching the cargo to lighten their load. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Remember, this was before the age of electronic navigation. This was even before the invention of the compass. Ancient mariners plotted their course by looking at the stars. But it had been weeks now since they had even had a break in the clouds. There was no clue as to where they were, how far they drifted. These salty seamen were terrified. In their desperation, they've given way to despair. The experts now have given up. Everyone had given up except Paul. Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Imagine this. Paul jumps up on deck. He pops out and he says, I told you so. They probably would have thrown him overboard if it was not for what he said next. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And I love those words. I love Paul's terminology. The God to whom I belong. You know, be certain as to who you belong. And it's less likely you'll become someone else's pawn. You won't be pushed around if you know to whom you belong and to whom you serve. The angel told Paul, saying, We do not, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sailed with you. Evidently, Paul had asked for God to save the passengers and crew. He concludes, Therefore, take heart, men. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. You know, in a crisis, real leadership rises to the surface. Everyone else has given up when all of a sudden Paul steps up. He issues the challenge. Take heart, for I believe God. I hope that's how you respond to a crisis. Verse 27. <coughs> Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. Today the Adriatic Sea speaks of the ocean between Italy and Eastern Europe. In Paul's day it referred to much more. It referred to the Mediterranean, the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Could it be they heard the ocean breakers slapping against the shoreline? And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. <clears throat> and when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again 
and found it to be 15 fathoms. These soundings were lead anchors that they were dropping and they were timing to see how long it took for them to hit the bottom. They knew the water was shallowing out. A fathom equals six feet. And so here they go from 120 feet of ocean to now 90 feet of ocean. Happens in short order. They know they're moving toward the rocky shore at a pretty fast clip now. Verse 29. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. This was a terrifying experience. Now imagine, it's pitch black. No one can see. There's no electric lights. This would be like driving your car without headlights. You know you're going to crash. You just don't know when. So in desperation, they drop four anchors off the stern and they pray for the sun to rise. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul had told them that earlier. God had said that they all must remain in the ship. You had to stay put to be saved. Only those on board would enjoy the salvation that was to come. Jump ship, try to save yourself, and you'll drown. And hey, this is like our spiritual salvation. We have to remain on board. We have to remain in Christ to be saved. If we try to jump ship or fail to abide, if we turn our back on the ship of Jesus Christ and launch out in our own efforts, hey, you'll surely drown. It's only when you stay put and you stay in the ship that you'll be saved. Well, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eating nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. He encourages them and he also fortifies them. He tells them to eat up. These crew members are about to burn some serious calories floundering in the surf. They're about to have to swim and push toward the shore. They had received the Lord's promise. Now they need some protein. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. Notice, practically speaking, This crew has a new captain. Have you noticed that? Prisoner Paul has now become Captain Paul. He's the only one that's taken any leadership in the experience. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. They were in for a rough landing. They knew it. So they threw overboard the cargo. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. The plan was to pick up a head of steam and run the ship right up onto the beach. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. 
but striking a place where the two seas met. In other words, they hit a sandbar. They ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Now, for two weeks, this has been a rough voyage. By now, this wooden ship is barely intact. It's hanging on, and now it gets stuck in the sand, and the churning waves begin to disassemble all that's left. The ship is breaking apart from the stern to the bow. Verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. And this was common practice under such circumstances. For according to Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the soldier assigned to guard him had to complete his sentence. Thus, these soldiers wanted to go ahead and just kill the prisoners in order to save their own skin. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose. Julius came to Paul's rescue. And he commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Just as God had promised, all who stayed with the ship made it safely to land. And ironically, it was the ship's boards and timbers that acted like life rafts to enable the crew and passengers to float toward the shore. And this is why it's always crucial to stay with the boat, to not jump ship. Don't give up on God. Don't bail out on God's will. Stay exactly where God has called you. You know, the safest place to be on the planet Earth is in the center of God's will. I'd rather be in the most dangerous neighborhood and in the center of God's will than in what you might think would be the most peaceful place and outside of His will. Even if it's a turbulent situation, even if a relationship is breaking apart, even if your life seems to be drowning, stay in the will of God. Trust in the will of God. And you see, it's the lessons you'll learn Maybe even the pain that you'll endure that will become the very thing that will save you from future troubles. See, there's always salvation where we stay in the ship. Well, chapter 28. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. The island of Malta is 58 miles south of Sicily. Recall their original destination was the Cretan port of Phoenix, 45 miles west of Fair Havens. This was a trip that should have taken less than a day. Instead, they were at sea two weeks, and they traveled 645 miles. Talk about a detour. And this is what happens when we follow the wrong voices. Satan's plan for us is always presented as a shortcut. But it ends up the long, hard, costly voyage. I read of a professional race car driver who was hired to drive a 15-block section of Colorado Springs. The driver was careful to observe all of the speed limits, all of the traffic laws. His time was 9 minutes, 35.1 seconds. Well, after he was finished, he was allowed to drive the same 15-block course again. But this time, 
as fast as his car could travel and as reckless as possible. With police permission, he drove at illegal speeds and he broke 52 traffic violations. And yet here were the surprising results. Even though he was willing to go at a reckless pace and travel as fast as he could, he was only able to shave off 3.9 seconds from his previous time. That's all he could shave off. You know, we assume that the laws are in place to slow us down or to make our life hard. In reality, we lose very little time doing the right thing. Even the few seconds we might lose are worth it when you consider the safety and protection of obedience. If you think God's rules are getting in your way, if you think God is slowing you down or God's rules are cramping your style, you're being deceived. In the long run, God's way makes life easier, not harder. Just ask the crew members on Paul's ship. And the natives showed us an unusual kindness, those natives on Malta, the Maltese. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now remember, it's mid to late October. Nighttime temps on Malta are in the low 50s. And that doesn't include the ocean breeze blowing in. It gets really chilly there. It was great that these islanders welcomed the water-soaked survivors with this roaring fire. But notice who's gathering the firewood. This is so important. Verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, I always love that. Paul, the apostle Paul, was a servant first. He's the one picking up the sticks to make to stoke the fire. The author of 14 of the 27 New Testament books was not above picking up sticks. Blows my mind. And when he laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When a poisonous viper hibernates, the snake's body stiffens. Paul picked up the snake inadvertently in a pile of sticks. And when the snake got near the fire, it woke him up. And the viper took a bite out of Paul. You know, the venom was obviously deadly. And thus the locals expected Paul to kill over immediately. We're told in verse 4, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. It's interesting, the Maltese worshipped a goddess named Justice. And here they assume that their goddess has finally caught up to Paul and has rewarded him the fate that he had escaped from the sea, but it deserved all along, at least or so they thought. And Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I love what Paul does with this poisonous viper. He shakes it off. He just shakes it off. Hey, if this had happened to one of us, a tourniquet would have been applied. We would have been rushed to the hospital. Or you would have expected Julius or one of the soldiers to pull out his knife, cut across the bite marks, and suck the poison and poisonous venom out of his hand. That's what John Wayne would have done. 
course, that's what I would have done because I've watched so many John Wayne movies. But notice what Paul does. He just shakes off the snake into the fire and carries on. Rather than focus on his wound, he just shakes off the cause of it and carries on serving the brothers there in the Lord. And this is a huge lesson for any of us who serves the Lord. You're giving to others in practical ways. When out of nowhere, the old serpent Satan slithers along and sinks his poisonous fangs into your hand. Often our attempts to do good can come back to bite us, can't they? It's ironic that we can get hurt even in the midst of serving the Lord. Has it ever happened to you? It's a servant's occupational hazard. And understand why Satan attacks this way. If he can get you to focus on yourself, if he can get you to focus on your hurt, your wound, he can distract you from your service. This is why the best way to handle a hurt is to just shake it off. If you take the time to nurse it or fixate on it, you play right into Satan's hands. Just shake it off and keep on serving. God protected Paul and God will protect all his servants. The bite won't be near as bad as you thought. God will neutralize the poison if you refuse to pamper the pain. Just keep on serving him. However. They were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now here is a legitimate fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made back in Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. In that passage, Jesus predicted These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up certain serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. In the book of Acts, we've seen them cast out demons and speak in new tongues and take up serpents. We've seen all these things happen. And God protected them. Again, notice that line. Then they will take up serpents, and it will by no means hurt them. Now, we've all heard about snake handlers up in the Appalachian country. People that literally pick up poisonous snakes to test the veracity of this verse. But rather than test God's faithfulness or their own faith, what they're actually doing is testing God's patience. For such acts are taking this verse out of context. It's not what Jesus meant when he said this in Mark chapter 16. It's presumption and foolishness on their part. I don't believe God ever intended for believers to go out looking for cotton mouths and copperheads. God knew that as the church marched out into the remotest parts of the world to fulfill the Great Commission, snakes and other dangers would be lurking. And here, Jesus is promising missionaries supernatural protection when they need it. And indeed, he has been faithful to protect them in such ways. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Delaware Indians who made contact with him long before he made contact with them. One day, 
a group of warriors slipped up quietly on Brainerd's tent, armed with knives and tomahawks. Their aim was to kill the stranger. But when they peered into the tent, they were stunned by what they saw. David Brainerd was on his knees in prayer, and just behind him was a poisonous rattlesnake coiled up and ready to strike. The missionary was oblivious to the snake. But as David Brainerd continued to pray, the snake lowered its head and slithered away. The Indians were so amazed by what they saw, they forgot their intention to murder him, and they went back to camp to report the news of the miracle they'd seen. When Brainerd finally approached the Indians, he was stunned by how well he was received. He expected a hostile reception, but instead the tribe treated him with great respect. It was only years later that he was told about what the warriors had seen in the tent that day. It had convinced them in advance that he was God's messenger and God's man for, for them. Here, when the men of Malta witness Paul's encounter with the viper, they go even further with their conclusions. They assume Paul must be divine. He must be a god. And just as Paul did earlier in Lystra, I'm sure he's quickly set the record straight. There was nothing divine about Paul. He was a man like them. And he used the occasion to witness to the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. Now recall, there were 276 passengers and crew on the ship. Not a single person had lost their life. Here, Publius feeds and entertains the survivors for three full days. He must have been a quite wealthy man. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed. And he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Publius' father became the poster boy for God's power. After his healing, all of the sick folk came and sought Paul's help. Luke continues, they also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. You know, it's interesting. What had been a detour, God turned into a vital stop on Paul's travel itinerary. The gospel came to Malta as a result of a storm and a shipwreck. And that's a good lesson. Whenever you get knocked off course, whenever you go through a shipwreck or a storm, Remember, it could just be God rerouting you for His glory. Well, verse 11. And after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. Ancient ships were usually identified by carvings in their bow. The twin brothers were the sons of Jupiter, according to Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux. In the mythology, the twins protected distressed sailors. Paul and his crew knew better. They had learned firsthand that it only takes one son to save drowning sailors. That's the Son of God. And that only son is God's only son, Jesus of Nazareth. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. And from there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day, we came to Puteoli. 
where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. The voyage from Malta to Syracuse was 80 miles. From Syracuse to Regium was 70 miles. And from Regium to Puteoli, the port of Naples, was 180 miles. It's interesting that Paul even found Christians in the small little Italian city of Puteoli. Just goes to prove how fast the gospel was spreading across the empire. They obviously were headed to Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and Three Ends. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. The ship docked in the port of Puteoli, and Paul traveled overland the remaining 125 miles along the famous Appian Way, the road from the coast to Rome. And it was on this this road that a delegation of Roman Christians came out to welcome their beloved guest. Not only had they heard of Paul, they had received a letter from him in recent days. In fact, this letter was the most brilliant theological treatise perhaps ever written. It was Paul's letter to the Romans. They had just received it and they were anxious to speak to him about it. In fact, we'll be studying it after the first of the year. Verse 16. Now, when when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Apparently, when they got to Rome, Paul was spared the dungeon and was graciously placed under house arrest. He was allowed to visit with friends and with uh, people who wanted to learn more about the Christian way. He was also afforded provisions by the locals surrounding him. His only restriction under house arrest was to stay chained to a Roman soldier. A different soldier was shackled to Paul every six hours. There were four shifts of soldiers per day. And this helps us understand Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. There Paul writes of his internment in Rome. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. Guess what Paul talked about with the guards each time they swapped ships? He preached the gospel. Imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for six hours a day. Either you'd get saved or you'd go crazy, one of the two. You definitely heard the truth. Paul turned an inconvenience into an opportunity. I love how Paul signs off to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Those guards that have been guarding me, some of them have become brothers and saints in, in the Lord. Apparently, many of the emperor's own guard were led to Christ by Paul while he was in Rome. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. Now, this was always his strategy. He would preach to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And so when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, 
Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. There were probably letters sent by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that falsely accused and condemned Paul. But God made sure they were lost in the shipwreck. They never got there. For God wanted the Jews in Rome to hear Paul and the gospel of Jesus with an open and an unbiased mind. Verse 23, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. We've actually found a recording of Paul's Bible study. And we have them on CDs tonight. They're available out in the foyer there if you'd like to pick one up on your way. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to have this on CD? I mean, Paul meets with the Jews. And from morning to evening, he opens the scripture. And he shows them how the Old Testament had prophesied of Jesus the Messiah. Wow, wouldn't you have loved to have heard that Bible study? And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some believed. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, and Paul now quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. The Hebrew prophet Isaiah had bemoaned the hard-heartedness of God's people, the Jews. And what was true of the Jews then was true of them now. But the exposure of their stubbornness wasn't what broke up the party here. What the Jews couldn't stomach and what drove them away was Paul's words in verse 28. For therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. It's amazing. The Jews weren't offended by Paul's rebuke of their own stubbornness. They were upset because God was willing to offer salvation to the Gentiles, to target Gentiles with the gospel. Some of these Roman Jews couldn't accept that God's love was big enough for all people. Well, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God 
and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding you. And notice this is how Jesus should always be preached, with all confidence. Paul's stay in Rome was a profitable time. During the two years he was there, he wrote four letters. Today we call them the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and his little letter to Philemon. Eventually, Paul was tried before Nero and released. We don't have the transcript of the trial. I wish we did, but we don't. But we, we are sure that Paul shared the gospel with the emperor. And Nero's rejection of Paul's message could have been the turning point in his life. For it was about this time in history that Nero went nuts. The man went mad. The emperor became vicious and angry. And guess how he vented his frustrations? He started killing Christians. He threw believers to the lions. He dipped them in wax and burned them as candles to light his lewd parties. When fire ravaged the capital city, Nero blamed the disaster on the Christians. As legend has it, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. During the five years following Paul's release, Paul continued to preach the gospel and he wrote letters to Titus and another letter to Timothy. It's possible he even traveled to Spain to preach the gospel. Eventually, Paul was rearrested by Nero and was thrown into Rome's maritime dungeon. It was there that he wrote his second and final letter to Timothy. Tradition tells us that in 67 AD, Paul was beheaded for Jesus' sake. Through the centuries, people have criticized Luke for ending the life of Paul so abruptly. But keep in mind, Luke was never writing the life and times of Paul. No, the theme of the book of Acts was the spread of the gospel. Think about this. The gospel of Jesus began on the edge of the empire, on its very outskirts, in a faraway province known as Judea. But in less than 30 years, it had worked its way all the way to the capital. And now, at the heart of the empire, under Caesar's own roof, Christianity's chief spokesman is spreading the good news of Jesus to the citizens and officials of Rome. And suppose Paul could have said, we've come a long way, baby. Just before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And by Acts 28, the first wave of this mission was finished. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the ends of the earth had heard. Of course, there's still much work for us to do. It's been said, every generation of Christians is responsible for their own generation of heathen. Have we taken the gospel of Jesus to our world? Trust me, we won't get very far unless we tap into that same power of the Holy Spirit. Let me close tonight by asking you to think of a neighbor or a friend who's not a Christian. Will you show them a kindness? Will you pray for their salvation? Will you speak to them about their soul? In a sense, the book of Acts is still being written 
by you, by me.